Whenever you rent or buy a video, you need to be sure that the film you choose is suitable for the audience at home. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. Welcome to Friday Night Movie Time with your host Lee with Mike, episode 13. Lee, what are we covering this week? And this week we're covering The Exorcist 3. Uh, released, was it summer 1990? It was released in the summer in the U- US in, of 1990 and then it was released a little bit later in the UK. Can you remember your first experience of actually seeing this movie? Yeah, I saw it before the original Exorcist because that was still banned when this was released. I would have seen it on VHS release... Probably sometime in 1991. I actually saw this in the cinema only because it was an 18 film and by the time I was 15 I looked about 25. I remember failing to get into the the rookie with Charlie Sheen and Clint Eastwood. That was a 15 when I was 13. Oh no, I was... But I did manage Pulp Fiction when I was 16, 17. Oh, that's not too bad. Then that was an 18. My, my main memory of... I remember some kids sneaked in to start watching it. And the famous scene in this movie, he sat there, that happened, and then he just ran straight back out, which always <laughs> made me laugh because he wasn't that much younger than I was at the time. Should we talk a bit about how this got into production? Uh, writer William Peter Blatty followed up The Exorcist with the novel Legion in 1982. And this was actually an idea that he had along with William Friedkin after the original Exorcist film. So how did they get to the uh, awful... Second movie first, was that a contractual thing? No, that didn't have anything to do with either of them. And in doing research for this podcast, I actually sat through The Exorcist 2. It took me three sittings, and yeah. I couldn't watch it for longer than, say, 40 minutes. Yeah, I've never bothered. I've heard so many bad things about it. I've been semi-tempted, especially covering this movie for this episode, but never got round to it. It is unbelievably bad considering it's got what at the time was one of the greatest living actors in Richard Burton not even he can save this film it is so bad but yes let's let's crack on with The Exorcist 3 we've got the opening scene which obviously introduces Father Dyer and Detective Kinderman two characters from the original Exorcist movie both being recast yeah and it puts you back in the world by they play part of the famous theme tune, Tubular Bells, don't they? Yeah. And they show the steps, famous from the ending of the original film. Which has very little to do with this movie. The one thing I always found quite strange about this film with the opening titles, Father Dyer was played by Ed Flanders. 
who every time it comes on the screen, I just read Ned Flanders. Yeah, same here. Um, diddly diddly. Yeah, did you know that Blatty had originally asked John Carpenter to direct this? I did not know. There was creative differences and they fell out over whatever was going to be the ending and I don't know which ending uh, Carpenter wanted. Probably should say now that even though we're covering the 1990 release of this movie, obviously on Blu-ray, we will allude to the director's cut that William Peter Blatty wanted to release. And I have to say now, for as much as that film adds to the story, it takes as much away from it as well. This this film has got a great story, yeah, but a bloody awful plot. The, obviously, the two of the main characters in this are Dyer and Kinderman, two characters that come back from the original film. Then we have this really weird scene of a church doors flying open and all leaves flying in which I guess you're trying to imply that evil is returning to... Because where is it set? It is Georgetown, Washington. Yeah, Georgetown again. Yeah. yeah. But then, even at 15, the sight of Jesus' eyes opening on a statue made me laugh. And it makes (laughs) me laugh now as well, because it just doesn't make any sense. I mean, some of the Edison, as we'll know later, is fantastic in this film, you know, giving you the scares. I think some of the tension is a little off off kilter at times some of the editing in this film is really bad yeah apart from the one jump scare i'd say they got a very naive editor in because obviously then after the church doors get blown over we see the long tracking shot this is the first time i've ever noticed that we see the, the victim the first murder victim in the credits where you see him standing the boy in the white t-shirt standing outside the shop then you see him standing at the end holding a rose yeah has some teleportation gone on there the film would have made more sense if they just leave him at the end of the street holding the rose there's another scene with that boy in further on which just makes me laugh now because it's just the sloppiest writing ever is that the dream sequence yes yeah can I just sort of mention, we get a few more callbacks to the original film, like, is it Kinderman and Dyer say they're going to watch It's a Wonderful Life Again? And that's a pretty famous scene at the end of the original. Yeah. Can I just say this as well? Kinderman did not know Karis in the film, in the first movie. No, He that's met true. him a few times. Yeah. This film makes... Dyer, yes, they were both Jesuit um, priests. Yeah. So it makes sense that he knew him. Kinderman in the first movie... Does not know him at all. He interviews him, what, twice? But this film makes out, and even says later on in the film, that he was a really good man and he was a very good friend of mine. What, that one time you met him? Pretty much. That just blows my mind. Another thing that blows my mind is, the original actor, Lee Jacob, was 62 when he made The Exorcist. He died then three years later. George C. Scott in this film is 63 are we supposed to believe that he hasn't aged in all that time? I went back and listened to the two audiobooks, The Exorcist and Legion, and I just pretty much saw in my head George C. Scott in the role, in the original as well. But for me, though, because in the original one, he's an old, you can tell he's an old yeah. man. He would have been retired by the time the yeah. second movie came out. Yeah, we're talking sort of James Bond level of continuity here, aren't we? That's it, though. The continuity in this movie just seems to jump around so much. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't make any sense. All it serves to do is to put you back in that world, but... 
Those, are we looking into it a little bit too much if we start to notice things like that? No, I'd have to disagree because The Exorcist was such an iconic movie. It was, even though it got banned in the UK, and that's probably what it's most famous for over here, is because it was, you know, it was pulled in '88. It didn't get released back on video till '99. This is quite an iconic movie, so most people have seen it. If you go back and watch The Exorcist One and Exorcist Three, which is what I did, it doesn't make any sense. Kinderman, they weren't friends. He hasn't aged, whereas Dyer has clearly aged. You know, we get the scene with them going to the cinema and watching It's a Wonderful Life again, which is, you know, nice is what friends do. Then afterwards, though, you get the story about the carp. Which is slightly expanded on in the the book, to the extent as much as you can. What does that serve? That That he really smells? Yeah, and have you noticed you're standing very close to me? If I've had friends who have actually smelt a bit, one thing I don't do is stand next to them really (laughs) close. Very true. George C. Scott, great presence, but he's a little bit all over the place, like the film itself. And he suddenly rants at that nurse in the hospital for for just basically asking a, a pretty calm question. Are we supposed to be, you know, seeing him as having this sort of breakdown? And, and some of the things that he says afterwards when he, you see Kinderman in the office where he's talking to the yeah. other detectives, one who is constantly wearing dark glasses... That made me laugh because all I kept thinking of was Cobra, the Stallone movie. And then just ran- randomly comes comes across and we go saying, we've got cancer and mongoloid babies and monsters in this city. What have cancer and mongoloid babies got in common? Yeah. <laughs> what, what are you talking about? Well, there's a lot of theology and religious debate in the book itself and it does feel like they've just, rather than an adaptation, they've just cherry-picked certain lines. And if you've not, if you're not got the whole context of the novel, then... A lot of the scenes don't make sense. Yeah, but even that, even the book itself doesn't make that much sense either. Mm. Because, I don't know about you, but I got the feeling with this film, it wasn't quite sure what it was a sequel to, yeah. whether it was a sequel to the book or whether it was a sequel to the actual film. Then, obviously, we've got the second murder with the creepy old lady who starts telling the priest everything about what she's done and... This film would have made more sense if you just crept with the one creepy old lady. She says how she's killed them, and then she obviously kills the priest. In the director's cut of this, the old lady gets taken away with a nurse, and you've got another woman finding the dead priest. But no one's questioned why this old lady has left the confessional box, mm-hmm. been taken by her nurse, and someone else has just gone in after her, and all of a sudden the priest is dead. You would question of going... Did you just kill that priest? Again, to go back to the book, a lot of people are questioned over that. But did you uh, see the scene they missed out when you actually see the priest holding his head? There's actually still of it in the production notes. It was a deleted scene. Don't they go for the cut to the statue, the headless statue, or is that just the the big jump cut later? The headless statue scene is after Father Dyer is... Just before Father... No? It's twice, isn't it? I think that occurs... There's a scene where the shears cuts onto a, a statue anyway with the head missing. You don't see the shears cutting the statue at all? No, no, I don't mean that. I mean... No, you only see the headless statue one. Um, after the shears scene. Walking behind the nurse. No, it's no. before that. It is It is after Father... No, it's before Father Dyer dies. Yeah. Kinderman is walking towards the... Walking down the corridor. He gets into the left. And there's a statue there missing a head. 
you have just had a murder where the head of a statue has replaced somebody's head. Yeah. And you don't think to go, it's suspicious. Yeah. We're back into the hospital and, yeah. and Dyer is in, actually in the hospital bed and Kinderman comes to visit him. One thing I, I will say this film gets right, the relationship between the two of them, even though in the first film they don't have a relationship passing acquaintances obviously over the 15 years their relationship has built up and they do come across as yeah i remember you messaging me saying they do talk like you and i talk mm-hmm. you know we've known each other for a long time then we've got the scenes with the detectives again where they're checking over the confession box and he asks him about whether they should take the prints from the inside of the confession box you are the police you would take fingerprints from everywhere. Yeah, exactly. I mean, have they got to ask in a church? Is that some sort of sacred ground thing? Yeah. You know, they'll obviously be allowed to, but is it just a question of them having to ask? Funny you should say that. There's another scene that comes up a little bit later after this, yeah. which, again, makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> then they get back the, the DNA report, and not DNA, the fingerprints, and it yeah. says that it's not the same killer. And then you cut to Kinderman lying in bed and the dream sequence. Featuring uh, Samuel L. Jackson in a uh, extra role. He says line, some line and it's apparently dubbed. Because there was a lot of theatre buddies of the lady who plays a nurse who gets decapitated later on. Samuel L. Jackson was one of her theatre buddies apparently in Washington. Oh right, because I... He got the role sat down with his wings on. Oh, I'm going to have to go back and watch that because I didn't... It looks a little bit like him, but because it's not the same voice. Yeah. I just assumed it was someone else. I mean, they say an unknown, but I know by that point, 1988, he was the guy who holds up the McDowell's restaurant in uh, Coming to America. Yeah, and he hadn't quite got to Goodfellas yet, where he's one of the guys that holds... Or same year, wasn't it? 1990 is this? Yeah, yeah same year. Same so it would be the same year. Again, another scene which should be really good, and yeah. there's parts of it that are... However, you've got the old lady playing the piano, which the expression on her face makes me laugh. Then you've got Glenn Miller as the band there. Yeah. If this is actually, you know, the waiting room for them to go to heaven, yeah. Glenn Miller has been stuck there since the 1940s <laughs> playing music. One scene I do like in this, because you have a call back to it later, where they're trying to get through they're talking on the radio the living a death and then obviously you see the old lady who they suspect might be the killer say i've got dead people talking on my radio which i thought was a, that was a nice sort of little call back however when you see the boy whose name escapes me the first murder victim he says i really miss you i'm sorry that you were murdered you couldn't have written a better line than that i'm sorry you were murdered it's very twee really isn't it it seems like very lazy script, um, script writing, which is just um, a thing through this entire f- movie of really lazy script writing. Because yeah. there are characters in this. that it, There's one character in particular that's coming up who should just be called Dr. Exposition. Yeah. He serves nothing else to this story other than going, right, okay, let me just show you this and do this. Okay, and then we see all the blood put into containers after Father... Dyer. Dyer is murdered. That's a, a very strange sequence, isn't it? Yeah, just a bit. Um, I listen to Bond podcasts and people talk about the, the logistics of villains building, like, you know, in Moonraker, the gondola with the the knives on the side of it. 
you know, some henchman has taken the time to actually build that. What's this demon done? He's managed to take the time to uh, put all this blood into containers. Not only that, the woman that we assume later is the one that has killed Father Dyer yes. is found lying on the floor. She has managed to pump eight pints of blood out yeah. of somebody and not get a single drop on herself. I feel as though I'm, I'm just shitting on this movie, and I sort of am. I love this movie. Yeah. It's a film I've seen many times, and I will continue to watch after this podcast. Yeah. It is not a great film, though. Yeah. It has so many plot holes. It has so many things that just make no sense whatsoever. It's almost like comfort food, <laughs> comfort movies. I think I think what one of the main things is, because we couldn't see The Exorcist at the time, Yes, you could see The Exorcist 2, but you, and you could then see The Exorcist 3, and it's like, ooh... You know, 15 years old, I'm kind of like yeah. really into horror movies by this point. Yeah. So, yeah, it was great. But this is not what you'd call a great movie. This is around the time when we get introduced to Dr. Temple, played by Scott Wilson, who at this by this point I had known as the governor from Young Guns 2. Right. Who just seems to be there. He doesn't serve a purpose. And this is the, at the point where he takes... Kinderman into where all the catatonics are. What for? Why are you taking them there? There's no. If they are catatonic, yeah. they are not leaving where they are. Yeah. And I like how it says they're in cells. Is that what they're called in hospitals? Cells? I don't think so. Nowadays, I don't know about the nineties, but I nowadays. don't think in the nineties they were called cells either. And it, you know, he around this point, and this is also the time where they're talking to the the person running the hospital, yeah. and he says. You can't do this. You can't. You can't fingerprint people. It's a fucking murder scene. <laughs> and another thing, your dad used to work with the police. Yeah. Yes. And I've checked this with someone else because I was genuinely cu- curious. If somebody is murdered that you have a personal connection to, you cannot serve on that case. Yeah. Kinderman not only serves on that case, doesn't actually seem to be that bothered by the fact that one of his best friends has been murdered. It's one of those movie sort of tropes of. Getting over things pretty quick. I mean, certainly taking it on the case himself in this case is just weird. Yeah, we've known each other what properly sixteen years, uh, but you know, I met you back in the nineties through another friend. Yeah. If I had to go where you had been murdered and your head had been c- cut off, I am not getting over that in twenty seconds. I need therapy. I'm leaving here now because yeah. I am too close to this. Yeah. But in this movie, all he needs seems to do is get a little bit angry and then he's absolutely fine this scene where they're all in the doctor's office another scene of real overacting why are you just all of a sudden losing your temper for no reason considering 10 seconds ago you were perfectly calm George C. Scott is a great actor but just really hams it up I'm going to talk about the jump scare mate the way it's, it's built up I mean I've seen a good YouTube video I can't remember who made it last night saying how this sort of influenced uh, a director like David Fincher in terms of dropping out the score in a movie like Seven, using the silence to build up the tension. I've seen this film so many times. I knew that scene was coming. I knew exactly when it's going to happen because obviously they build the tension up first by her going into the room where the doctor is. uh, They're going to swap shifts, the security guards. The guy crawling out from the side of the bed. Because you don't actually see anything. I mean, on the... If you know it's coming now, we realise she is carrying shears. Yeah. But the first few times you see it, you just hear the noise and you don't really see what she's carrying. Because it's it's so quick. On the 
the Blu-ray for this, the Arrow Blu-ray, yeah. through Amazon.com and Doco.uk. It shows alternative cuts for that. The one they end with in the, in the movie makes so much more sense and is much scarier than the ones... So what, have they got different angles, did Just you say? different angles from, like, like worm's eye view. Yeah. Um, one from... There's just lots of different different angles. Oh. One thing I should say that was also on this this Blu-ray, which I mentioned to you at the time, was why is the Exorcist 3, 3 got a blooper reel? But I did find yeah. that weird Yeah, on the menu screen. Going to be honest with you, one film that shouldn't have a blooper reel, The Exorcist <laughs> 3. There's nothing in that makes you go, ha, ha, ha. Cannibal Run, definitely have blooper yes. reel. Smoking the Bandit should have a blooper reel. I'd even go like with The Office and stuff. That's yeah. got great blooper reels. The Exorcist 3 does not have a great blooper reel. Dr. Temple has taken um, Kinderman into the isolation ward with all of the catatonics are and introduces us to Patient X, who is clearly Damien Karras. You've got the worst edit. Even at the time, I thought, because Britain in 1990 had quite stringent laws of what you could show and what you couldn't. I always just assumed that he takes him to this one room, then it cuts to him looking shot. I always assumed there was another scene that was cut out for whatever reason. Then I saw the American version of it. No, it's just really bad editing. Yeah. What are we supposed to be shocked by? Even in the um, director's cut, there's nothing else that makes that scene better. And is it improved by having Jason Miller and... Brad Dorif as the two sides of Gemini and Father Karras. William Peter Blatty just wanted Brad Dorif. The studio, because they could get Jason Miller, wanted at least one actor from the original movie to be back into it. In the director's cut, where you don't see Jason Miller at all, you don't care. Damien Karras was a good man in the first one who sacrificed himself to save a young girl. Having him come back and see him being tortured, because I've always taken it as being, when you see Jason Miller, that is the demon. When you see Brad Dourif, that's the Gemini killer. And that duality makes scenes much better than, right, who's this guy? Because Brad Dourif was 30 in that film, maybe. Probably, yeah. You know, he still looked quite young. If he'd been 15 years on, it's like, that's that's not Damien Karras. Or in his 30s, because he's in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in 74. That's 16 years before this. He still looks quite young, though, yeah. to be fair to him. Even now. Yeah, that's true. Wasn't he in Star Trek at one point? Quite possibly. Uh, let us know, folks. And we get the strange sort of use of VHS reels in the... In the director's cut. This is one thing the Gemini killer starts talking about how he had to kill the two priests and he had to kill the boy as a favour for for someone else, which yeah. you assume, you know, it has something to do with Reagan McNeil, Linda Blair's character in the first film. What's that kid got to do with that? That kid would have even been born. Well, it's said early on in this film that he's been possessed by Pazuzu as revenge, isn't he? Father Dyer and the other father, whose name I can't remember, they were both characters from the original film. That boy wasn't. That boy just happened to have the letter K. So then, okay, I can understand why the Gemini's killing him, but why was that a favour for Pazuzu? That doesn't make sense. Just a plot point to have the duality in, I think. Again, back to the, this has a really bad plot. It's like you're just making things up as you go along. Although I will say, this is the point where the films start to become really interesting. When you see Damien Karras and Kinderman and Gemini 
all talking with one another. It becomes genuinely creepy then. Yeah, the tension is Because I don't know about you, but through this film, didn't seem to know what it wanted to be, whether it wanted to be a horror movie or a psychological thriller or a comedy in some parts. Psychological horror, I'd put it as overall. One character in this film who I think probably does the best job is Nurse Atherton, played yeah. by Nancy Fish, because she actually comes across as being probably the most caring and also the one person who doesn't overact, especially a little bit later where Kinderman can't control himself and he punches him and she starts talking about that man really frightens her in that room yeah except for once when he's can't remember what he says save your servant his voice was, was softer he he seemed nice where you assume that is the one time where Damien Karras is actually inhabiting yeah. his own body jumping straight forward where obviously yeah. the Gemini killer wants to show his power there is the one scene where Kinderman asks him how he gets out, and he says, I get helped by some old friends. Again, more ham on the screen. He couldn't have made that any more obvious than going, oh, some old friends are helping me. Wink, wink. Write some better dialogue than this. <laughs> and then he tells him that, you know, he'll show them what he can do by sending that. The, the one scene where Kinderman is phoning his wife, or she's on the phone to who she thinks is his, her husband. Yes. Who's she on the phone to? Because it's not Kinderman. Because no. he doesn't know that the nurse is there. That's never explained away. And then you obviously see the scene where he goes home. The nurse is sitting there waiting for it with the giant shears. They're in the middle of a murder scene. And you've got an old lady who's overpowered a nurse, stolen some giant shears, yeah. and walked out. 20 minutes before in that movie, they've actually said, lock the hospital down. How the hell did this old lady get out? Because I'm pretty sure the security guards would have gone, don't recognise her. We see the old uh, shears round the neck of his daughter for a second. And that is another scene that just makes me laugh. And then she turns into Lou Ferrino as the Incredible Hulk. Yes. Can't think of the best way to describe it without sounding, you know, going back to the 1980s. But a spaz moment. Of which she just goes, ah! And then <laughs> yeah. falls on the floor. What are you talking about? Yeah, exactly. What is going on here? Now, after this, we obviously see the priest, which they've talked about going to for an exorcism, which has seen we've jumped. And how, how early in the film is he introduced? Because he's quite a late addition, isn't he? He's not introduced until the second half of the movie. No. And he's it, not based, he wasn't in the first one. Any no. sort of peripheral character there. But the way they talk about him, if you didn't know, yeah. you would assume it was Father Marin. But it's not. It's some other random character that's had something to do with exorcisms. I saw one um, YouTube video saying he's an old Draco Malfoy. Yeah, I'd go with that. Yeah. Why not? You introduce him and you have this, you know, save your, save your servant and you have this overdramatic, very religious. You see Damien Karras on the, on the cross and all of these hands coming up. In the director's cut, after... The Gemini has tried to kill Kinderman's daughter, which I still think would have made more sense if it had been his granddaughter. Yeah. Because that girl is way too young to be his daughter. In the director's cut, he just goes into the cell and said, you're free now, Damien, and shoots him dead, and that's where the film ends. Right. That scene makes a lot more sense than what we get. The priest on the ceiling with his face being pulled off. How's he getting up there? Why is his face being pulled off? Yeah. Never explained. To then George C. Scott being pushed up against the wall and saying everything that he believes in. And then finally, 
he decides to let him go and he just shoots him. You're free, Damien. Well, no, he actually says, shoot me, shoot me now. And then it, the film ends. Sort of 90-odd minutes film? It's not very long, is it? It's not very long. It's This film, for me, again, I love this film. I really do, and it's one of my guilty pleasures. But it's, it's a film where they seem to have had a lot of good ideas for scenes and thought, kind of makes sense if you put them together. Threw them all together. With a film like The Exorcist, that film works on so many different levels. Yeah. It's not just about a girl being possessed. It's about a girl dealing with the breakup of her, f- of her parent, about her mother's obsession with the with the church. And all of that has so many different layers. Yes. With this, it wants to have so many different layers, but just can't be bothered to even have it in any connecting tissue through mm-hmm. it whatsoever. That all being said, what's your final decision on this film, Mike? It's enjoyable. I think you've you've given us most of the criticisms, mate, um, and I'd agree with most of them. As you said on the way when you got here tonight, I've been listening to the audiobook of Legion, and that's got its problems as well. But it could have done with a more expanded script, I suppose, rather than tightening it up. Blatty wrote the original story. He wrote this one. I think if you'd had someone else come in and go, well, actually, you should do this, and you could do this, it would have, I wouldn't say bulked the story out, it would have given it more the connecting tissue it would have mo- it would have made more sense rather than going right okay well if you do this and you do this and you do this because yeah. the Gemini Killer is a completely new character it wasn't it was never mentioned in the yes. first film it's a great idea yeah. and actually going back to it you know where he explains how he is alive now and how he got mm-hmm. into Damien Karras's body yeah. that body was in the morgue do you not think somebody from the police force would have gone, do you know that, that priest that died, had his neck broken? He walked off. Yeah. Someone <laughs> would, he would have been a missing person. Yeah. It just doesn't make any sense. But still, he would have been buried by the church. Yeah. I think when they picked the coffin up, thought, ooh, this was a bit light. Yeah. It's not, all It's all the Gemini says is, he was in the electric chair, he was dead, he was in the void. Karis had just killed himself by jumping out the window, so the master put him into Karis's body. That, I like, that's a really good idea. But then you say that you just get up and walk out. You broke your neck. Okay, and you do explain that it took 15 years to put all the brain cells back together. I really like that, that's really yeah. good. But it still doesn't explain that you walked out of a morgue. Bodies don't walk out of morgues. Bodies don't go missing from morgues. How are you explaining this away? That's the problem. You have this brilliant idea and then just falls down at the end. So you did enjoy it. I can sense you did really enjoy it, did mate. You're it. saying I, this with a smirk on your face. I do. So. I love it. I love this movie. <laughs> it's so bad. It's brilliant. Yeah, it's your, one of your guilty pleasures. And it's a film that I'm probably going to watch again now in the next couple of weeks. Do you prefer it or the original? Honestly... I prefer this. I love The Exorcist. It's one of my favourite films, but I will always watch The Exorcist 3 before. I would recommend this one too. Oh, I would definitely recommend it, but just don't think about it too much. Yeah, as we've just discussed over the last 40 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> it can make for a long Right, run. so what's your? Cho- it's your choice next. What are you going to go for? One of my favourite directors. We haven't done a movie by him yet. Uh, two of my favourite comic stars of the 80s. Steve Martin, John Candy. Oh, nice. Planes, Trains and Automobiles. Yes. I love it. Oh, yes. Bye-bye for now. Bye now.